Our first scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 23. Let us listen now for God's word. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. Our second scripture reading comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Let us listen again for God's word. So then remember that at one time you Gentiles by birth called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of God's household, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. This is the word of the Lord. You know, one of the unfortunate tragedies, I think, of the 23rd Psalm is that as beautiful and wonderful as it is, and as comforting as it is, we rarely hear it outside the context of funerals, right? It's really kind of the funeral song. And unfortunately, I just had a a little run of funerals over the last month or so, so needless to say, I've I've heard this psalm uh, quite a bit recently. It's also one of those passages that you've, you've probably heard so many times before that uh, you can probably easily recite it from memory. You know, of course, in the eloquence of the King James Version, right? It's such a well-known and much-studied passage that 
Uh, one prominent biblical scholar even suggested that at this point, even thinking that you can comment on it is, is almost pretentious, right? Continuing to comment and talk about this psalm is almost kind of to the point of being pretentious. So even uh, at the risk of sounding pretentious, uh, I do want us to try to hear this psalm this morning with fresh ears. My hope is that uh, we might hear it in a new way and that it would speak to us with uh, an unexpected freshness. Historically speaking, I, I think this psalm is rather fascinating. The, the historical contexts of psalms are no, notoriously difficult to pin down, and this one is no different. But one of the interesting things that we do know is that in this context, in this time and place in the ancient Near East, to claim the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the Jews, as shepherd, was actually quite a bold statement. Both Egyptian and Mesopotamian uh, cultures used to use shepherd language and imagery to refer to their kings and their gods, and sometimes both. So, for instance, you, you may be familiar with uh, the famous Hammurabi Code, which uh, the epilogue to that code reads like this. It says, I made the people lie down in safe pastures. I did not allow anyone to frighten them. So you can hear the similarities, right? It sounds a bit familiar. Now, this, this isn't to suggest that uh, in Psalm 23, the author was merely copying the language of his neighbors, but to put it into context to what it means to call God shepherd in this time and place. It's not a simple appropriation of foreign imagery, but a profound statement of the lordship of God over all other foreign gods and idols and kings. And quite a profound statement, too, coming from uh, this, the, from the Jews, this group of marginalized and formerly enslaved people to say, no, our God is the shepherd. Our God is the God and king. And literarily, of course, it's a thing of beauty. Some commentators have noted that uh, this psalm is exactly 55 words with very, very little repetition, which is unusual for a psalm because psalms often uh, repeat a lot over and over again. And the 28th word, the word at the very center of this psalm, is you, in reference, of course, to God. So at the very center of this poem is the phrase, you are with me, which is essentially the thesis statement of this psalm, of the poem. And also in the middle of the psalm, there's this interesting shift uh, in the imagery that's being used. Right? The, the first four uh, verses are filled with this shepherding imagery that we were just talking about, that, that most of us associate with the psalm, being led beside green pastures, uh, being made to lie beside uh, still waters, right? God's rod and staff as a source of comfort for us. But then in verse 4, the imagery shifts from God as shepherd to God as a host who is preparing an abundant feast, preparing a banquet. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. And there's some question among uh, scholars about how to take that line in the presence of my enemies. You know, what, what exactly that means. It, is God uh, preparing this table as some kind of display of protection, right? Saying to the enemies, you know, back up. You know, this guy, this one is protected. Warning the enemies to stay away. 
Or is it a way of communicating God's provision in a time of crisis? That even as uh, the world rages around us, even as we are surrounded by enemies, God's abundant table is still before us. Or, perhaps is God preparing a table so that the enemy and that the one who writes the psalm can sit down and break bread together? Perhaps God is preparing a table of reconciliation, a table of peace. I think the next line is also telling. The psalmist says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. But the Hebrew word there for follow is actually much stronger. right? I think a better translation would be something like pursue or chase after. So in other words, the imagery here is not simply that God's goodness and mercy, you know, kind of go with the person who is faithful, following along like the little lamb that followed Mary to school. Instead, I think it speaks to uh, our propensity to resist God's goodness and to resist God's mercy. And that even in spite of our resistance, God is constantly pursuing us, constantly chasing us down, hunting us down, so to speak. Perhaps because we so resist the idea of sitting down and breaking bread at the table with our enemies. And again, uh, the Hebrew word for enemy here more literally translates those who are hostile to me, the ones who are hostile to me. I think that's significant because uh, enemy can often feel like a really abstract term for us uh, because many of us don't necessarily feel like we have a real enemy, right? It's a very strong word. But I'm sure if we took a minute, we could all identify folks in our lives who are or have been hostile to us, or to whom we have been hostile. People who have wronged or hurt us in some way. People who have given us these wounds that we still carry with us. People that we'd honestly really rather not sit down at the table and break bread with. But these are the folks for whom God has prepared this table so that we can dine with them. Because at this table, our enemies, those who are hostile to us, become our sisters and our brothers. At this table, the dividing walls of hostility are broken down. This is not a table of division that God has prepared, but a table of peace. And in our reading from Ephesians, we see uh, a little bit, we get a little glimpse into some of the divisions that drove some of the early Christians apart in many ways. We often have this, I think, unfortunate idea that the early church was nothing but kind of beauty and harmony and perfection. It was this pristine church and everyone got along and were on the same page and then kind of somewhere along the way, uh, it all fell apart. But if we read God's letter, uh, sorry, Paul's letters, also God's, I guess that works. If we read Paul's letters, we learn that simply wasn't the case, that those churches were just as, if not even more messy than ours are. As was common among uh, many early churches with a mixed congregation of Jews and Gentiles, issues of the law, and especially circumcision, uh, would often drive a wedge between people. And these are complicated issues because uh, for centuries, something like circumcision, for instance, which is the issue uh, in this chapter, was, was a defining marker of Jewish identity. And the idea that the Jewish God, because remember, this is still Judaism at this point, the idea that the Jewish God would suddenly not care about circumcision anymore 
seemed rather odd to many early believers. Has God changed? Has God's mind changed? There was a pretty clear commandment that we're supposed to do this, and it was a, a sign of belonging to God's covenant community. So how is this suddenly not a big deal anymore? And the author of Ephesians suggests that uh, the law has been abolished to create a new humanity free from such divisions. But this is kind of a strange line, too, because you may remember in, in Matthew 5.17, Jesus specifically states he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And it's, it's important, too, to say, though, that those verses, the language in those verses is slightly different. In Matthew, Jesus' statement is very strong. I did not come to abolish or destroy the law. Whereas in Ephesians, the word that he uses is something more like nullify or render ineffective. And it, this is actually one of the reasons why scholars, uh, many scholars don't believe that Paul wrote Ephesians because elsewhere in Romans 3, Paul uses the same word and asks, do we then overthrow, that's the word right there, overthrow, nullify, do we then overthrow the law by faith? And he says, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So, so which is it? Is, is the law abolished or is it not? Is it nullified or is it not? Now, to be clear, Paul is consistently adamant that circumcision is not important, that it is faith that saves us, not circumcision or any amount of obedience to the law, only faith in Christ. But to me, this is one of those interesting cases where I think what we see is these biblical authors kind of working things out as they go, you know, trying to figure out and to understand this new reality that they find themselves in, this new, this new humanity that the author of Ephesians talks about. So perhaps it's more important for us to focus on the bigger picture. You know, however we understand the law and things like circumcision, the larger point that the author is making, which I think in some way echoes Psalm 23, is that we are all members of the household of God because Christ has broken down those dividing walls of hostility. And this is where I think we often go wrong. <clears throat> the real issue is that those, the issue is not, the issue is not that those dividing walls still exist and that we need to dismantle them or destroy them, right? The real issue is that those dividing walls have already been dismantled. They've already been destroyed by Christ, yet we still live as if there is a dividing wall between us. We continue to erect those dividing walls that Christ has already broken down. We still live in and often actively promote that division. We still live as though we are not all fully a part of the household of God. Because in the household of God, there are no petty divisions. There is no hostility. We recognize each other as the sisters and brothers that we are, rather than defining each other according to the cultural patterns of division, like the circumcised or the uncircumcised, like Jew or Gentile, male or female, conservative or liberal, right? We could go on and on. In the household of God, we recognize that we have been reconciled to God. So there is one body, and we are no longer strangers and aliens, but citizens, because the household of God is built upon, upon Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. 
And in the household of God, there is a table. And around that table are gathered people that we would otherwise consider our enemies. Those who were hostile to us or to whom we have been hostile. And there is an overflowing cup. And we are constantly pursued, chased down by God's goodness and mercy. And when we live and move in the household of God, as that structure is joined together, it grows into a holy temple, a dwelling place for God. For we know that God does not simply dwell in a temple made with hands. God does not dwell in a building, but in the temple of the household, in the temple of God's people. And if this sounds like an unattainable standard of perfection, it is, in part. For now, the household of God will always appear in imperfection. We will continue to live in division, and we will often actively continue to build up those walls that our Savior has already destroyed. But at the very center of our lives and at the center of our life together in the household of God is the reminder, you are with me. God is with us. We still have a shepherd, the one true shepherd, whose rod and staff brings us comfort, who leads us through the darkest valley, who leads us to green pastures and still waters, who leads us in right paths. And there is no promise that matters more than that one. God, our shepherd, is with us and is building the household of God even here in our midst. So may we learn to live in this new reality, not continuing to build up those walls of hostility, but seeking to live according to the grace and mercy that God has given us. Amen.